The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Good morning and welcome to Story City Church. That literally had nothing to do with anything. I just wanted you to know my experience this morning. My name is Jared Ossalier and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, By the way, if you saw my notes blowing away last time, Amber, thank you for this. That's genius. I really appreciate that. Uh, what, a, what, a great, what a great rescue. So we all appreciate, we all appreciate that gift. Uh, whether you're joining us online or in person, welcome to the family. We're so glad that you are here. I believe that God has called us as a church to lead communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and others. I believe that's what we're supposed to do. So what does it look like to be a healthy apprentice of Jesus? I believe that a healthy apprentice of Jesus Christ, excuse me, is increasingly engaged in knowing and believing the gospel, is living out the gospel in community, and is modeling and sharing the gospels to others in their everyday life. That's what it means to be a healthy apprentice. And so as we learn to do that together as a family, because it's not natural, as we learn to do that, then we find that we are a part of God's story for Los Angeles. That's a pretty cool thing. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's sermon in Matthew. And uh, Matthew places this sermon at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Uh, I think for a reason, Jesus begins to reveal what his new kingdom is all about. And, uh, And as he does that, we see that it's first a spiritual kingdom. It's first a spiritual kingdom. Now this is significant that this is a spiritual kingdom. Because Jesus is saying that, that the Jews who were facing uh, oppression and, and racism and injustice and even murder at the hands of the occupying Roman government, they were saying, God, you need to come and meet our needs. And they're saying, Lord, when are you going to come? When are you going to come and rescue us? And God answers not just the Jews, but he answers all of humanity. But instead of addressing the needs that they felt were most immediate, instead of addressing the most obvious needs to them, he, he doesn't deal with those things right away. Jesus says that the slavery and bondage to sin is a greater and more urgent need. And that was as shocking now, as it was as shocking then as it is now. That Jesus chooses first to deal with our slavery and bondage to sin as a greater matter than the injustice and the racism, than all of the things that we look at and say, this needs to be handled right now. God, where are you in the midst of these things? It's not that Jesus doesn't address or recognize their physical needs. He, he heals diseases, infirmaries, sickness. But he invites us to become citizens of an eternal kingdom a kingdom that will never end. He invites us to see that what we're going through now is a temporary world and we have the opportunity to be members of an eternal one. Jesus invites us to look at everything as temporary and to place our hope in him as he promises to rescue and renew all creation through him, spiritually now, physically, and finally in the future. So Jesus' sermon is intentional. Jesus said what he said on purpose, and I believe he said it in the order he did because I believe each statement builds on itself. All of it applies to us. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, or as I like to say, Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones, puts it like this. We can look at it like this. The first beatitude asks us to realize our own weakness and our own inability. It confronts us with the fact that we have to face God not only in the Ten Commandments and the moral law, but also in this Sermon on the Mount and in the life of Christ himself. Anyone who feels that by his own strength he can accomplish all that has not started to be a Christian. No, it makes us feel we have nothing. We become poor in spirit. We are truly helpless. Anyone who thinks he can live the Christian life himself is proclaiming that he is not a Christian. When we realize what truly we have to be and what we have to do, we inevitably, inevitably become poor in spirit. That in turn leads us to that second state in which realizing our own sinfulness and our own true nature, realizing we are so helpless because of the indwelling of sin within us and seeing the sin even in our best actions, thoughts, and desires we mourn. So to be followers of Jesus, we have to realize we can't do it on our own. That's poor in spirit. And that we are truly sinful even in our best efforts and good attempts. That should bring us to a place of mourning, the hopelessness of our situation. But it should also move us to compassion for others as we realize that they are just as hopeless and helpless as us. That we can't move into the place of great joy unless we have been healed and changed by Jesus. But now comes something next in Jesus's sermon. The word meekness. This word the CSB translation translates or some of the other ones translates as humble is the word praus, meaning humble or meek. But what is meekness really? Now, in my family, my wife and I were just talking about this message and my wife is saying, yeah, you know, through my whole life, uh, people have described me as meek, but you know, what's funny is it always comes across as negative. Negative. Um, me, not so much. That's not something that people would generally describe me as meek in that context, right? But I think that we've redefined what meekness is. I think we have refashioned this word apart from what Jesus was meaning. And so if you're taking notes today, this is our first observation for the day. Meekness is primarily internal and is compatible with great strength and leadership. Meekness is primarily internal and is compatible with great strength and leadership. Moses was a leader of the, all of the nation of Israel and someone who is called a friend of God is also named as the meekest of men. Numbers chapter 12, verse three says, Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of earth. That's that same word, praus. David, king of Israel, and one of Israel's greatest warriors was a man of exceptional weakness, especially when he's facing King Saul, who is trying to kill him. And he continually relies on God and doesn't act in his own strength. Jeremiah, the prophet, and Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, Paul, the apostle, are all men of strong, influential, and even powerful leaders in history who are men of great meekness. But Moses wasn't meek until God made him weak. The same with the apostle Paul. Jeremiah says he was a fiery pot, a boiling pot until God got a hold of him. And so meekness is not a natural disposition, but something that comes from the spirit of God working 
in our lives. This is one of the ways that we know meekness is for us as well. Paul literally says, come follow me as I follow Jesus. In other words, we're invited into Paul's transformative Jesus as we are transformed by Jesus on that journey ourselves. So what is meekness? Well, first we have to understand it's not a natural trait. It's not a natural trait. It's not natural to be meek, and yet this is what all the followers of Jesus are called to be. Meekness isn't weakness or laziness. It's not exceptional niceness. It's not the person that has a spirit of compromise or peace at any price. It's not someone who is a doormat. The people that we mentioned before, the great heroes of faith, heroes of the Bible, were great defenders of the truth. The meek person is one who may believe so strongly in standing for the truth that they may even go all the way to the death and die for that truth if necessary. And so while meekness uh, shows itself outwardly, it is primarily an inward part of our spirit and character. It's my attitude towards myself and it's an expression of that attitude in my relationship to others. You see how it inevitably follows being poor in spirit and mourning. We can never be meek unless we have first seen ourselves as people who are needing Jesus, people who are first vile sinners. But when I have a true view of myself as being poor in spirit and mourning because of my sinfulness, I'm led on from there to see there must be an absence of pride. The meek person feels there is nothing in himself of which he can boast. This is why Paul says, I don't boast in me, boast in Jesus. If you're taking notes today, this is our second observation for the day. We are to leave everything in the hands of the Lord. We're to leave everything in the hands of the Lord. When we're poor in spirit, we realize that we don't really have anything to offer God. Now, I don't know about you, <laughs> but this is not something that comes naturally to me. I often feel I have things to offer God. And I feel like God should be aware of that sometimes. I remember when um, my wife and I were called to plant a church in San Diego. We had come from Hawaii and uh, literally God told us to sell everything we own to move. And I remember uh, coming to, to San Diego and starting new and thinking, well, then this obviously instantly means success. Everything's gonna go really well. And when things begin to start falling apart, I remember saying to God, don't you know what I've done for you? That's always a genius thing to say to God, right? <laughs> like somehow he doesn't know. And I remember thinking that I had this, this right to success or this right to, to things being easy because of all the sacrifices that my family and I had made for God. And God's like, you wanna talk sacrifice with me? Really? But so often we, we have this idea that we have great things to offer God and really we don't. Even our best stuff is of nothing of value. Paul says, Paul says that over and over, but God can and does do great things in us and through us. He can and does do great things in us and through us, but it's still God empowering and enabling us not our own strength or ability. This is why over and over we hear, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This is why Paul can say <laughs> that it's in, it's in my weakness that God is the strongest. 
I'll give you an example from my own life. Even from the time that I was young, um, people that I love and respect have said over me, you have a gift of leadership. You may have heard this yourself. You have a gift of leadership. And I can tell you that I've seen that played out in my life where God has put me in leadership situations I had no right to be in. I was not qualified to be in. And somehow God did miraculous things where even in those positions, I saw him use me in ways that is just incredible. Things that I have no idea how how God accomplished through me the things that he did. And yet... Over and over, I have this tendency when I see a leadership vacuum to feel like I need to step in there. Over and over, I find myself in a group of other people. If if someone doesn't step up to leadership going, oh, I'm a leader, I should exercise my gift of leadership. I need to act like a leader in this moment. Every time that I've tried to use my gift of leadership, it's come across as a weapon and it's hurt people. I've steamrolled people. I've left a wake of destruction numerous times throughout my life. There are several very clear moments I can picture that that I know that I I was operating on my own stuff and that I hurt people. Those moments come up a lot and I, I desperately pray, Lord, I pray that you that you have redeemed those situations because I know that I messed them up and I thank you that you're bigger than me and that you can rescue and renew all things, even those things that I have messed up so so badly. And it brings me to this place of mourning. I hurt over those times, over those relationships, over those things. The good news is that when we as a people come to a place of mourning over our deep brokenness and sin, we aren't left there hopeless and helpless. This is the beauty of being a citizen of the kingdom of God. The kingdom transcends our circumstances and our reality to institute a new reality in our new kingdom identity as beloved sons and daughters of God. Understanding how broken we are should point us to our need for Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we're reminded of the grace that has been poured out for us, right? That's what grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. When we remember that grace, then we also realize even our worst stuff is stuff we don't have to hang on to. Anything we've done wrong, we can no longer hold on to because it's not ours. Jesus bought it from us. He took that on himself. He paid for that. And so we don't need to be carrying that around any longer either. It has no power over us. We cannot brag about the things we've done that are good and we cannot hold on to the things that we've done that are bad because they do not own us. Either one of those things, both of those things belongs to Jesus. We leave the good and the bad in his hands. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter two, verses one to 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, I love that. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us 
in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. The person who is meek does not demand anything for themselves. The person who is meek does not need to demand anything for themselves. They aren't worried about their rights, even if they are owed them. The meek person doesn't make demands for their position or privilege or status or name. They're not even sensitive about themselves. They're not always watching out for their own interests and are never on the defensive. Why? Because they trust God completely for anything good and they rely on God completely for anything bad. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see there is nothing in and of ourselves worth defending. So we're not on the defensive. All that is gone. The person who's truly meek never pities themselves or feels sorry for themselves. They never think, if only people gave me a chance, they would see how wonderful I really am. To be meek then is to be finished with yourself altogether. And come to see that we have no rights at all. It means there'll be a complete sense, a complete absence of the spirit of retaliation, having our own back or saying that the other person pays for it. There's a no need, there is no need for retribution when we're meek because we trust that God is going to bring justice. It also means that we should be patient and long-suffering, especially when we suffer unjustly. We don't own any of it anymore. Now, the truth is this sounds all nice, but how on earth do we actually live this, right? Because I look at this all the time and I'm like, uh, nope, nope, failed that one, failed that one. And that's the beauty of, of, of Jesus is that he is making us in to be who we are supposed to be. It's a part of that process. Moses was one way and he became something else. Jared is one way and he's becoming something else. That is the beauty of the Christianese word we call sanctification. It's a big word just meaning that God is continuing the work that he started in us and he will fulfill it and finish it. If you're taking notes today, this is the third and the final observation for the day. We can't make ourselves meek. We can't make ourselves meek. Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones said, somebody out there is going, is that him? I don't know, it's not me. Anybody who feels that he by his own strength can accomplish all that has not started to be a Christian. The truth is, is that we, we can't do this on our own. We must be ready to be taught by the spirit of God and led by the Lord Jesus himself. Meekness always implies a teachable spirit. Nothing but the Holy Spirit can humble us. Nothing but the Holy Spirit can make us poor in spirit and make us mourn because of our sinfulness and produce in us this true right view of self and give us the very mindset of Christ himself. That's incredible. Only, only the Spirit of God could do something like that in us. A character of meekness is the direct fruit of the Holy Spirit. A character of meekness is the direct fruit of the Holy Spirit. As we spend time with Jesus, listening and speaking and reading and following and trusting him, 
we'll find that there is inevitably change in us. It just comes from being around Jesus. See, so often church, we have, we have got this wrong. We feel like the church's job is to fix people. That is not right. It's not. That's Jesus's job. And church, anytime that we go and try and fix the people around us, we're actually wrong. We need to introduce people to the one who does heal. That's Jesus. But often we forget that it's not our job to fix ourselves either. And in our own strength and our own power, we begin to try and make those changes in us. And here's the deal. Anything that is not done by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has to come in and actually remove even our good works because it's not his. And so we need to hang with Jesus. This is where change actually comes from. Now it's not easy. I've been struggling in this specific area of my life for years. It feels like just in the last two to three that I finally feel like I'm beginning to let go of my rights, beginning to understand who I am in Jesus. I literally have tattooed nothing to prove right here on my chest because I forget it so often. I have to see it in the mirror every morning to remind myself that I have nothing to prove, no one to impress. that God has validated me through Jesus. And because of that, I can drop the hurts and failures that I carry out a sense of guilt and shame for my sin. I can let go of those things. I can also let go of the good things that I think I've done because I am who Jesus says I am, not who I think that I am. As I've let go of these things, I'm seeing how much more I'm fulfilled and filled by Jesus, how much more natural it is. Jesus wants to do the same for you. Not because we deserve it, but because he really and truly loves us right where we're at, not for who we might be, but for who we are right now. That he wants to rescue us by waking us from spiritual death. He wants to renew us day by day to become more like him. This is our hope. This is the gospel that Jesus has come to rescue and renew all creation through the person and work of Jesus. So if you want to know more about becoming a follower of Jesus or you want to take the next step and be baptized, you simply want to know more about what we talked about today, please see me or an elder after service, someone with one of the name tags. If you're online, please follow the link that our Story City account has posted this morning. We're so excited to see what God does on your journey and we're glad to be in this journey with you. Let's pray. Father, you are so faithful. You are so good. You're absolutely amazing. Thank you that we don't have to be enough ourselves, that you are enough. Thank you that you're our hope. We love you and we trust you even with ourselves. In the name of Jesus, we pray.